0: Coming up on Tech Nation, Ohio State Professor Angus Fletcher brings us the neuroscience behind literature and why a story is compelling. He's here today with Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. Then an excerpt from an earlier interview with David Peterson, best known for creating alien languages for HBO's Game of Thrones, Netflix The Witcher and such films as Marvel's Doctor Strange. While we're creating the literature, why not create the language? All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes.
0: In 2010, I spoke with former WIRED editor-in-chief Kevin Kelly. He talks about what technology wants. In his opening chapter, Kevin Kelly traces the origins of the word technology. I asked him to start there.
2: Technology is actually a recent word that was first used in English around 1829 and it was um, invented, so to speak, by a professor who was bringing together a bunch of applied art courses, your mining, your chemistry, your architecture. And he kind of concluded that, oh, my gosh, this is really one subject, and that subject is, I'll call it, technology. And um, that word was sort of used a little bit as time went on, but actually I did an analysis of all the State of the Union speeches from the last 200 years, and the the word technology didn't even occur uh, very often in those speeches until the 50s. And so it's a word that we have only recently applied to something that is actually very old.
0: Well, the 20th century really was sort of the hubris of man and technology. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking about Post-World War II, just about the 50s, we're talking about an electrical grid that went all over the United States. We're talking about, in in the early part of the century, suddenly we were built, building huge hydraulic dams nobody had ever done before, interstate commerce systems, you name it. I mean, suddenly we were able to take technology, and it wasn't just progress. We were going to conquer anything
2: Mm -hmm. in nature and it was
0: that was sort of the zeitgeist of the time
2: yes it is and the cost of that was a lot of environmental damage in a sense of um, – or not even thinking about what the uh, consequences were environmentally. So we had a kind of a reaction, a discovery of, of the consequences of this with Rachel Carson and others saying, oh, my gosh, hey, we have to look at this. There actually is a cost. And that cost still goes on. There still is a cost to it. But I like to think of um, technology as sort of developmental in the way that there is a progression – in a regular organism where they're kind of egg and then you have infant or little you know, embryo or something and it goes on to a, a childhood and a teenage. And I think in some senses that industrial age of technology was sort of a terrible twos. For attacking yeah. um, it was very I, self- I have
0: it. no consci- <laughs> yeah. consciousness of the consequences of my behavior right, right, exactly. and I only want yes right, exactly get it, i get it, it.
2: very very <laughs> self centered and uh, and brutish and some kind and, and kind of um, dirty and grimy and I think um, once technology reached a certain level of complexity and we started to kind of import. Or it started to resemble, in some ways, an ecosystem or with the Internet, kind of like an immune system. And when it reached this level, I think a new facet, a new face of technology was revealed. And we began to see in it as something bigger. We began to see another face in it. We, got, we understood that it was not just sort of this inhumane, steam-powered, chemical, dirty thing. But actually, at its essence, it was a more of an informational Thing that was connected to life, and I think my book is, in some ways, kind of illuminating that connection between uh, the system that we're making right now of all these things—the World Wide Web, the communication stuff, genetic engineering—with the long three point seven billion years of life. That that really the same kinds of dynamics that run through life run through the technium and technology, and that. The Technium is sort of an extension, a continuation of the forces of evolution and, of course, the acceleration of them, which is a big thing.
0: You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with former Wired editor-in-chief Kevin Kelly. He talks about what technology wants. His most recent book is The Inevitable, understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. That's right. If it's tech... Look for Kevin. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn. And this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Ohio State Professor Angus Fletcher gives us a lesson on the neuroscience behind what has made literature compelling through the centuries and the purpose it served when it was written, which recalled for us David Peterson's 2015 interview. Having created the Alien Languages for HBO's Game of Thrones and Legendary's Dune, we'll hear an excerpt about the art of language invention.
3: Technation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com.
0: And now, Angus Fletcher, the author of WonderWorks, the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature. Well, Angus, welcome to Tech Nation.
3: I am so thrilled and excited to be here, I can't even tell you. No, I'm
0: thrilled. I'm thrilled to be here, too. <laughs> uh, now, before there was literature, there was story. I mean, stories, plural, passed down before written language, and we're told uh, they relate the history of your tribe from you know one generation to the other. But they never say anything about the emotional content. You don't just say there was a big flood and we all moved to a different place. You go, you know, it was devastating and we lost this person and this fan. You know, it's like stories are not without emotion.
3: No, I mean, they can't be. I mean, we know now for a long time, we thought that human brains were primarily driven by reason We thought that, you know, the special thing about our humanity was we were so much more logical and sensible than the other animals on this planet. But as we now know and as we have seen revealed to us uh, many, many times over the last few years, few decades, human beings are primarily emotional in terms of the drivers of our behavior. We can think something is true, but we won't necessarily do it. But if we feel something is true, if we feel that we have to do something, we will do it. And part of the secret and enormous power of stories is the fact that they don't just give us information, they give us that information with feeling, with passion, and it then becomes information in action that drives us forward, that causes us to act, that inspires us. And I will also say that even though it's true that stories are sometimes about information and knowledge and passing on wisdom and all those kinds of wonderful things. Stories are also about the ability to exist in the absence of wisdom, in the absence of knowledge. I mean, that's part of what makes them so extraordinary is the fact that they can give our lives purpose and direction and meaning without necessarily giving us solidity and permanence and absoluteness. It's that combination of flexibility, but also guidance That makes them such an adaptive tool. And I think why they were in many ways the most important tool in our ancient ancestors' lives, more so than flint axes and even fire. Stories were what brought communities together, what empowered individuals, what allowed them to imagine new futures and to imagine new technologies. Every new technology begins in a story, a story about the way the world could be, and a story about how that technology could be built. So, Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that is one of the many missing dimensions about storytelling that we don't talk about nowadays is that deeper emotional, psychological component, all that, all the different ways that it engages our brains.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned the word technology, because here at Technation, Nation, uh, the first rule is if God didn't make it, it's technology. And, and you point out
3: stories are technologies. They're inventions. Yeah, well, so my definition of technology um, is simply anything that humans make to solve a problem. Anything we make to solve a problem. Oh, we don't even need a problem. We're engineers. We'll just, we'll just invent something. We don't even need a problem. I mean, here at Tech Nation, apparently, we just invent stuff. We're engineers. Come on. <laughs> yeah, and, and literature is made. It's in that, I mean, we get our word fiction from fiction. I mean, fiction means something that's made. That's the origin of our idea that we can make things, is literally fiction, and what's extraordinary about literature is that it's really the most powerful technology we've ever created. It's not just a technology, it's the most powerful, the most foundational technology. But of course, nobody thinks that nowadays. And the main reason I think that nobody thinks that nowadays is because no one understands how the technology works. And to understand the t- how the technology works, you have to understand where did it come from? What is it supposed to do? And you can start. To understand that by comparing it with with what we now think of as our most advanced technologies. You think of computers or you think of planes or you think of smartphones and smart homes and these technologies have made our lives so much faster and so much smoother in so many ways but at the bottom of them all is an attempt to grapple with the same problem. The problem of domesticating our planet, of making physical space more manageable, of of transforming space-time into extension of our human needs and desires. But if you think backwards, there's a more fundamental problem than surviving in our physical world. And that more fundamental problem is simply surviving as ourselves. And that's what literature is about. It's not about turning outward to wrestle with those kinds of physical difficulties outside us. It's about turning inward to wrestle with the psychological difficulties within us And those psychological problems begin with the fact that we have this marvelous, wonderful, incredible, tremendous thing in our heads known as a brain. And, you know, this brain, as we see around us from all the extraordinary things we've created, all the marvels we've engineered, you know, all the kind of miracles that uh, our ancestors would be stunned to see that we have created, all these things come from the brain. But the brain is also an extraordinarily fragile instrument. Uh, I mean, it has this capacity to ask these enormous questions, which it cannot answer. And we all know what that's like when you ask a question that you can't answer. I mean, there's curiosity, there's wonder, but there's also despair, futility, hopelessness. Where do we come from? What is the purpose of this life? What is the meaning of anything? You know, um, that kind of intellectual spiral. And at the same time, as we've already talked about, one of the main drivers of the human brain is emotion. And emotion is so powerful, propelling us forward, I mean, passion, enthusiasm, these drivers. But it also is responsible for so many of our difficulties, our anger, our grief, our loneliness. And what literature does is it helps us troubleshoot all those problems that come with having a human brain. It allows us to troubleshoot the problem of living in uncertainty. How does it do that? Well, it gives us a kind of direction that doesn't rely on truth. And that direction is narrative. It's saying, this is the future we can imagine, and this is the past we can imagine. It doesn't need to be true, but to our brain, that's enough to answer these kinds of existential crises of where do we come from, where are we going? And as I talk about at some length in the book, I mean, you know, it is also an extraordinary technology for helping us manage our emotions, for regulating our negative emotions, and for giving us positive emotions, so helping us work through grief and anxiety and even trauma. But at the same time, giving us joy and purpose and meaning and love and curiosity and all these extraordinary positive emotions that drive us forward, have driven us forward as individuals, but also as communities to create, to invent, to hope, to dream, to be. So to me, it all starts with literature because it all starts with the brain. Um, And you want your brain to be as powerful and as healthy and as happy and as hearty as possible. And literature remains our best technology for giving us that best version of our own brain.
0: Well, remarkably, you have degrees in both neuroscience and literature. What insights does each bring to the other, neuroscience to literature and literature to neuroscience?
3: Well, I'll say the first thing that I've taken from both neuroscience and literature is just how much more there is for us to learn about everything. Uh, you know, I mean, I went into neuroscience in the first place because I was just so amazed at the wonder of my own head. And it's such a strange thing to have a brain. I mean, we all know this. I mean, you know, you fall in love for strange reasons. You remember certain things, but not others. And, you know, you have such enormous capacity for imagination. I mean, imagination remains one of the great mysteries. Uh, I mean, where do humans get that? How does our brain think of all these things that it thinks of? And so one of the first things I just took from neuroscience was just a sense of wonder, possibility, possibility openness. And then, you know, literature, the same thing in the sense that it is just extraordinary. You nearly need to walk to a bookshelf and just flip through some of the poems that have been written, some of the stories that have been come up with. And you start to realize what humans are capable of. It is just extraordinary. It is fantastic. And then once you've had that moment of wonder, the wonderful thing for me about neuroscience is it gives you a technology for starting to understand it. Uh, I mean, science begins in a moment of disenchantment. I mean, it begins by saying magic is amazing, but wouldn't it be even more amazing if you could make the magic? And so that's how we get chemistry out of alchemy. You know, that's how we get astronomy out of astrology. And these are, this is a kind of birth of science is wading into these mysteries, these extraordinary things that our ancestors were only able to explain by invoking concepts like God and soul and saying, you know, there might actually be something there that we can fathom. There might be nuts and bolts and gears and and atoms and quarks and equations. And maybe we can start to kind of tease out the why and the how of how the mystery works. And for me, I want to do that with literature because that has not been done with literature. We, all of us live in awe of literature. Um, I would imagine that every one of us at some point in our lives has watched a film read a book. Even as children, the first books that you read as a child, you know, just how they just unlock so much joy and imagination and possibility. But no one in history has ever explained how that wonder works. Where does it come from? What are the nuts and bolts? What is the engineering, you know, that that, that humans put into it? Instead, when we go to, to school, we learn how to analyze literature for its themes and for its arguments and for its ideas and all these other kinds of things. Um, which is all very useful. It builds critical thinking and all these other skills, but it doesn't explain the machinery of literature. It doesn't explain how it causes these extraordinary psychological effects. And I realized that we are now living in an age where we have the technology that's advanced enough to start to understand the brain. And we can start to marry that technology to understanding how literature works in the brain. And once you understand how literature works in the brain, you can start to then go back from that and reverse engineer From our psychological experiences to the actual specific nuts and bolts, the the blueprints of literature. And you can actually start to parse out the moments where different things were invented and different things became possible for authors that were never possible before. So that's, I think, kind of how the two come together. I think they're both about wonder and mystery, but I do think that science gives me more of the, the skills and the apparatus and the technology. And literature for me. Um, is more of sort of where I apply and kind of focus uh, that technology to explain.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Ohio State University professor Angus Fletcher. He studies the scientific workings of all types of literature, including novels, poetry, film, and theater. His work is supported by the National Science Foundation, among others. And besides his books and academic papers, you may know him from his audible Great Courses Guide to Screenwriting. He's here today with Wonderworks, the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature. I went to a girls' high school, and in our freshman year, uh, the Good Sisters had us all read The Scarlet Letter in English class. And I thought it was rather a racy book. I didn't know if my parents would approve, you know, a young unmarried female gets pregnant with, with very bad consequences. But until I read your book, I didn't realize that the nuns were basically shouting at us, do not get pregnant. <laughs> do not get pregnant. We're telling you this, but we're not going to tell you this. And I thought it is more than just the moving of individuals about what is possible. You can use literature to move whole societies or attempt to.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I will say, I mean, I think a lot of us have had this experience in school where literature is presented to us as a kind of do this or do that. And we're often told that, oh, it contains a message. It contains something, it's telling you something is right or something is wrong. And then a lot of times we're also told that, you know, when we presume to have our own opinions about literature, we're right or we're wrong. And, you know, a lot of us have that kind of primordial joy and pleasure and growth and imaginative spark kind of beaten out of us. By this, by, by this kind of educational process. And of course, that's not, not what literature is about at all. Why would literature know what was right and what was wrong? And the reason that literature is read this way is actually because all the things we learn in school have actually been imported largely from the Middle Ages in terms of the techniques that were used to interpret the Bible. So when you go to school now, you learn to interpret literature. Well, these are techniques, these are hermeneutic techniques that were developed to interpret the Bible, to find out what was right and what was wrong and so on and so forth. Um, And so when we apply them to literature, they produce the same kind of dynamic, the sense that there is a right and there is a wrong, that the author is God and whatnot. But that's really not what literature is about. Um, Literature is about an opportunity, an exchange, a chance to discover, to explore. It's fundamentally a free space. I mean, at the bottom, we all know that we can choose which books to read. You walk into a library and you can take any book you want off the shelf. Um, and when you open it, you can shut it at any time it's not compelling you it's inviting you it's giving you a chance, an opportunity to explore, to discover, to grow at the same time, um, that opportunity has been seized upon by so many people that you're right. it has proved transformative, not just for individuals but for entire peoples. One of the things I, I sort of talk about briefly in the book, um, is the fact that many of the technologies that birthed democratic Athens were literary. They came from the theater. They came from writers such as Plato. And, you know, those technologies have gone on and been innovated. Uh, Frederick Douglass reaches back, takes many of those democratic technologies and improves them again during the American Civil War to imagine a new kind of freedom, a freedom that the Athenians never achieved, a democracy without slavery. There are technologies in the book which launched the Renaissance. And I think most extraordinarily of all, there's a technology in the book that really launched the scientific revolution. Not many people know this, but the beginnings of the scientific revolution come from a way of thinking that was developed by thinkers such as Machiavelli and Francis Bacon out of ancient myth, out of ways, out of literary traditions. And that um, you can still find if you read books like Sherlock Holmes or watch Murder She Wrote or Dragnets. And these are all these world-changing technologies that come to us from literature. And I think what's extraordinary about them is how diverse they are. So if you want to be more creative, there's a technology in literature for that. Um, if you want to be a better problem solver, not be creative at all, you know, uh, but just focus on the hard facts, there's a technology in literature for that, you know. Um, if you want to be more optimistic, there's a technology in literature for that. Uh, If you want to be more critical, there's a technology in literature for that. And I think that just flexibility in literature reflects the flexibility in the human mind and also the flexibility of human ingenuity that all these authors have seen that our societies can grow in so many different directions and have taken as much advantage of that as they can. And if I can inspire anyone in reading this book, it's first of all to think, oh, my goodness, there's so much room in literature for me to grow, for me to explore, But also so much in the future. I mean, at every moment of time, uh, people thought, oh, well, that was it. You know, we've discovered all the stories that exist. You can't possibly do anything new. And sadly, that attitude continues in a lot of areas of the humanities and, and the literary arts. People think, oh, it's all been done. And one of the things I hope to inspire people with in the book is no. in the same way that uh, technology is continuing to innovate outside of literature, literature too can be innovated. It's always been innovated. It's been one of the most innovative technologies in history. And that means that whatever problems we're facing now, there are literary uh, inventions that are waiting out there to be made to help solve and resolve them. And to sort of encourage audiences, uh, readers, to strive for these technologies, those new technologies, to become innovators themselves.
0: PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, has was only officially recognized after the Vietnam conflict, but in fact, trauma has always been a part of human experience, uh, be it in armed conflicts or sexual abuse or any any number of of areas. Um, one powerful treatment that's in use today is called EMDR, having to do with eye movements and how it desensitizes the trauma that you've experienced. If you could explain quickly EMDR and where we might see it in Greek tragedy and and the purpose it served.
3: Absolutely, and I just wanna preface this discussion by saying even though I'm gonna talk now about the psychiatric benefits of literature and tragedy, I don't want to ever imply at any point that uh, literature is a replacement for psychiatric care. Um, It's a supplement, it's something that can work in tandem. With, uh, with psychiatric care. But yes, one of the extraordinary discoveries that we've made is that literature contains a host of technologies that really work um, for helping alleviate trauma. And one of them relates to EMDR. So EMDR is this um, sort of amazing discovery, it's so amazing that at the time it was considered to be magical, that if you move your eyes uh, left, right, left, right, left, right, While you're undergoing memories, autobiographical recall, an exposure, a a recall of of a traumatic experience, that can actually be therapeutic, this eye movement back and forth. And this has now been validated by the World Health Organization, by the um, American Veterans Association, is now in use worldwide, this, this treatment and this therapy. But it was discovered, as we now know, 2,500 years ago by the ancient Greeks. And it was discovered in the course of Greek tragedy, and this discovery first was brought to my attention when I was fortunate enough to work on an uh, NEH-funded grant um, launched by Aquila Theater in New York City, which went around giving performances of Greek tragedy to veterans, um, many of whom were survivors of the first Gulf War. And I saw again and again and again and again these performances of Greek tragedy having this enormous cathartic effect on veterans. They would weep, they would cry, they would open up to their families for the first time about these experiences, they would feel strengthened. One of the um, things we know about um, PTSD is it has many, many characteristic symptoms, including hypervigilance, anxiety, and we could see a kind of qualitative easing of these symptoms in these veterans as they were watching these performances of Greek tragedy. And that, first of all, just struck me as incredible. And I thought, how could this possibly be the case? And that's really the moment that that more than anything else launched the book. And I went back and I learned that Aristotle, um, 23 centuries ago, back in 335 BCE, had said, actually, yes, Greek tragedy is a remedy for trauma. It helps veterans. It causes catharsis and it purges post-traumatic fear. And I thought to myself, how could that possibly be the case? What is going on there? And Aristotle then goes on to identify a very specific mechanism, which builds something known as self-efficacy, which is our ability, our belief in our own ability to survive tragedy. And there's this wonderful series of inventions that the Greeks developed so that when we watch Greek tragedy, we feel ourselves able to help the people who are suffering on stage. And by feeling that we are able to help them, we increase our brain's belief in our ability to help ourselves. So that's the kind of broad basis of it.
0: I'm speaking with Angus Fletcher. His book is Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear from David Peterson on how to create alien languages like those on HBO's Game of Thrones. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Angus Fletcher, the author of Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature.
3: Aristotle says, of course, nothing about uh, EMDR, which is, is, is a, a much more recent therapy. Huh?
0: He says, He says From nothing. Grave? He says nothing, right,
3: exactly. <laughs> Nor has he come back to inform me. Um, but what's remarkable about Aquila Theater is they were one of the very first groups to say Greek theater. Is not about a bunch of people standing on stage. It's about bodies moving. It's dynamic. And we know that the word orchestra, when we think of the word orchestra, we think of a group of people sitting still playing instruments. And so when we go to a Greek theater and and see the performers standing in what the Greeks called an orchestra, we similarly think, oh, they must be standing still. No, it means dancing space. Orchestra means dancing space in, in Attic Greek. And we know that the performers would move dynamically back and forth across the stage. And we know that when you sit close to a performance of, of Greek tragedy, what you do is you move your eyes back and forth left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right.
0: Oh my gosh, it's M- EMDR. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and, you know, like EMDR, the purpose of these tragedies is to elicit memories of grief, of suffering. One of the things that comes up up again and again is you have a chorus on stage which says, we all have suffered in some way. And so anytime you see a terrible event on stage in Greek tragedy, the chorus will come up and say, we have suffered something similar to that. And it prompts autobiographical recall. And the combination of that prompting with the eye movement we know has this therapeutic effect. And it's something that the Greeks found out. How did they find out? Well, because ancient theater is a lab. It's a laboratory space. It's a place of empiricism. And over time, they discovered that this worked for veterans, and they continued to repeat it. And that, to me, is what's so extraordinary about so much of ancient literature, is because it existed in a laboratory space. It wasn't driven by one person sitting by himself with a pen and a paper. It was in this dynamic space with an audience and with feedback. So much of the technology is already troubleshot. It's already come together by a kind of scientific method.
0: you write. Our brain has a natural desire for justice. And you go on to say, when our brain becomes inflamed with the conviction that someone has done wrong, our neural desire to rebuke that wrong can grow so powerful that we stray into mob violence. You couldn't have known about Washington, D.C. on January 6th when you wrote those words.
3: No, no, I couldn't. But unfortunately, that is a scene which has repeated itself endlessly through history. And, you know, this is one of the beautiful things about the human brain, but also one of the less beautiful things about the human brain is our deep rooted emotional need for justice. That emotional need for justice is what has held together so many of our societies, that sense of fairness. Um, part Part of justice is the willingness to sacrifice ourselves so that other people get treated fairly. And this is a really extraordinary thing about humans, that we will willingly Harm ourselves or put ourselves in danger to to help somebody else um, who we perceive as being wronged. Um, The problem, however, is that this desire has to be very, very strong in the human brain. And the reason it has to be very strong in the human brain is because it conflicts with our self preservation. To risk yourself for somebody else's justice, for what's fair for somebody else, doesn't make logical sense in terms of your own survival. And so for for justice to actually work in the human brain, it has to be an unbelievably powerful, powerful emotion. So powerful that it has negative attendant effects, such as anger, rage, lingering resentment. I mean, we've all had this in some form or another where somebody does something to us and we just can't let it go. And it causes this grudge in us and we, we nurse the grudge and we obsess over it and we fixate over it. Um, And then when that starts to become a group thing, when a group starts to hold a grudge and become angry, um, then that itself becomes essentially what we think of as mob justice, which, of course, isn't justice at all. It's a bunch of people acting in an angry manner. And it usually involves revenge. It involves punishment. It involves damaging things um, in an attempt in the minds of the the damagers to um, sort of make things right or make things fair. And when our justice emotions get to that point, we need to figure out a way to calm them down, to deescalate, to say, is this really justice? Uh, Because remember, the point of justice is not justice, at least not in the human brain. The purpose of justice is happier, more inclusive, more fair societies. And the moment at which that justice emotion starts to go in the other direction and create intolerant societies and angry societies, and exclusionary societies and damaging societies, it's no longer doing what it was biologically evolved to do. And that's why our brain has a counterbalance to justice, which is called empathy. Empathy is the ability to see the problem from the other side. It's the ability to forgive. Um, It's not necessarily the ability to agree. You don't need to agree with someone to have empathy for them. You can still say, you know what, I think that was wrong, but you can still have empathy and forgive them And when you have empathy and forgive them, what that does is that, first of all, is healthy for you. It relieves you of anxiety, excuse me, of anger, of stress, all these kinds of negative things that get built up. But it's also healthy for the community. It's a way of moving on and saying, okay, let's try this again. Let's see if we can all get together and move on. And what's extraordinary about literature is literature has technologies both for encouraging that justice feeling but also for encouraging empathy. And that empathy invention, it dates back to the book of Job. It can be found in Greek tragedy. It can be found in many of Shakespeare's plays. I mean, the extraordinary thing about Shakespeare's plays is, is they encourage you to feel empathy for, for characters who do bad things. Richard III. Horrible things. <laughs> terrible, horrible <laughs> things. And that's the important thing about empathy. Um, again, because empathy doesn't mean I think you're right. Empathy doesn't mean I agree with that or I'm gonna condone that. Empathy simply means I'm gonna let go of my own anger because my anger in this moment is becoming counterproductive. My anger is not helping us work through this problem. Um, And you know, again, anger can be very, very productive in certain instances, particularly for self-preservation. If you're under immediate threat or immediate danger, anger has a real purpose because anger is about pushing other people back so you can escape. But if you are in a state of chronic anger where you are angry all the time, that's not productive, because ultimately what you need to do is you need to shift the underlying thing that's making you upset. And you can't change that dynamic by being angry all the time. That's just damaging you. You have to de-escalate, calm down, have conversations, find compromise, do other sorts of things. And so literature has evolved this technology, and it's in many of your favorite books. That's why when you read so many of your favorite books, you're encountered by character, you encounter characters who do things that you would not do who act in ways that you maybe actively disagree with. But nevertheless, you care about those characters. You feel for those characters. And literature is all about developing this capacity to have diverse societies, societies that are filled with people that we disagree with, because ultimately those are the healthiest and happiest societies, not societies where everybody thinks like me or thinks like anyone else, you know, but societies where we all think differently and we can all put aside our anger to come together and celebrate the diversity and the difference, which is us.
0: This is not done by declarative sentence. You know, under the right circumstances, the anger and this desire for justice, overwhelming, shall we say, desire for justice, can be transformed into empathy. And uh, one vehicle, as you say, is the, the science of the apology, What is the science of the apology?
3: Yeah, so the apology is an extraordinary thing because apology is an example of something that we humans have invented. Apologies are not something that just exists out in a state of nature. Um, A human being had to invent an apology. Where does an apology come from? What does it do? Well, what we know is that when somebody apologizes to us, when they say, I regret what I did, I regret what I did, I see that it caused harm, And I am going to make an effort not to do it again. That powerfully activates empathy circuits in our head. Now, that's not to say that every apology is effective. Our brain is wise to the fact that people can make false apologies. And if our brain knows that someone is making a false apology, that doesn't stimulate the empathy circuits. But if our brain isn't sure, if our brain is open to the possibility that it could be genuine, that apology tips the balance. It makes us more likely to forgive. It makes us more likely to move on. And what's extraordinary about literature is it's full of characters who apologize spontaneously. So famously, Oedipus. Oedipus, at the end of this play, in which he has, in his own mind, committed all these terrible sacrilegious acts, you know, killing his own father, marrying his mother... He cries out to us, the audience, and says, I have done wrong. I have done wrong. And he's calling out to us. He's saying, I acknowledge that this is a mistake. Now, what's extraordinary about this moment is, from the perspective of the play, at least, it's not really Oedipus' fault that he did any of these things. He was fated to do all these things. He did them out of ignorance, you know. Um, But nevertheless, he apologizes. And what's important is not whether or not the apology is for a real crime or for fault or for blame, but simply the fact that he apologizes. That's what creates this empathy. And throughout literature, one of the extraordinary things that happens is we develop this capacity to go inside characters' minds. The technology of the novel allows us to go beyond the stage where we're always outside of characters and we always see them from the outside. And the technology of the novel allows us to go into a character's mind. And when we do that, what happens is we're able to ascertain this apology is completely genuine. For the first time in history, without literature, you can never know that an apology is genuine. You know, if one person just apologizes, you do on the street, you could never know for certain. But with literature, you can enter into a person's mind and see their interiority and know this is genuine. And so literature is this technology for stimulating empathy like nothing before. It's basically taking the apology, taking this basic invention, and amplifying it through its own technology. And that's why, you know, in most cases, most of us in our lives can do with more empathy um, simply because our empathy circuits are weaker than our justice circuits. We're more likely to get angry than we are to forgive. We're more likely to get riled up and, and, and judge and attack people than we are to say, you know what? I want to understand your perspective. Um, I want to de-escalate the situation and listen. And literature has provided that counterbalance, and that counterbalance is one of the things that allows us to have these extraordinary diverse societies. If we were constantly getting angry all the time, we would go back to what is known as a kind of revenge culture. And a revenge culture, every time somebody does something wrong to you, it's an eye for an eye. Uh, and we see this in ancient Greek tragedy, we see this in the Bible, these eye for an eye moments. But over time, our society has evolved so that we are able to go beyond that, to let go and to realize that a lot of the damage done, particularly in our society, is unintentional. I mean, a lot of the times that people hurt us, our brain, when we get hurt, always thinks, oh, that person meant to do it. But literature can help us see maybe they didn't. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it was an accident. Or maybe they regret it. They can change. And so literature is this technology for kind of giving us more of this marvelous, wonderful thing that our brain has evolved to do, but perhaps doesn't do as much as would be ideal in our day and age.
0: Golly, sure, sure, it's true. <laughs> sure, it's true. Well, we, no one's going to argue with that. You write that there are three related groups of ancient teachers the literary sophists who taught the secrets of literature that we're talking about, the rhetoricians who combined the secrets of literature with argument, and the philosophers who focused on the secrets of argument. We're all familiar with the constant tsunami of arguments. It's around us everywhere. But what about the literary sophists who taught the secrets of literature? What happened to the secrets of literature and why? Why?
3: Yeah, so this is a thing that I just became fascinated with um, as I was working on the book, because even though this book is the first book of its kind in the modern world, it's not the first book of its kind to ever be written. Uh, A much shorter version of it with two inventions was written by Aristotle. It's called The Poetics, and it was published 23 centuries ago. And in it, Aristotle calls literature technology, and he talks about how it can have these therapeutic mental health and well-being effects. And I started to wonder myself, where did Aristotle get this idea from? Because Aristotle was an extraordinary, brilliant man. But I thought to myself, did he just come up with this idea all by himself? Well, probably not. Um, There's a prehistory. It's hard to to know the full history because um, so much of the historical record has been lost. But what I sketch out in the book is the likelihood that when literature first emerged and people started to realize how powerful it was, Um, there developed a group of teachers who explained how to write literature, how to understand it, and kind of how to extract these marvelous things that they did. Some of the first things that literature did that we know that were identified were to create courage and to create love. These are two of the very basic kind of original things that literature did. And so we think that these teachers, the sophists, um, whose name means uh, knower, wise, uh, emerged to kind of document and explore and kind of pull out the technology that Aristotle later celebrates in the poetics. But what happens over time very quickly is some of the students of the sophists realize that the ability of literature to make you feel things can be weaponized. So if literature can make you feel love or can make you feel fear, then what you can do is you can take literature's inventions and you can stick them into your arguments And at the same time as you're arguing, this political decision is bad, you can then make everyone feel very afraid. And then all of a sudden, your argument becomes much more much more effective. Or you can put love, the technology for love, into an argument. And as you say, this political decision is good, then everyone falls in love with your argument. And this is the beginning of rhetoric, the idea that you can take the technology of literature and use it to advance your own arguments, your own political ideals. What happens in the ancient world, and and this is now we're on very solid foundation. We know the sophists existed. We don't know much about them. We definitely know the the rhetoricians existed. We know a lot about them. And we know that they incited the fury of of a third group of teachers called the philosophers. And the philosophers said, oh, you guys are just going around um, with these arguments, exciting people's emotions. And that's very intellectually dubious. You shouldn't be mixing emotion with arguments, because how does anyone know what the the right arguments are? So we've got to strip all of the emotion out of arguments. And then came along the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, and so forth. And a battle emerged in the ancient world between those who practice rhetoric and those who practice philosophy. But it was a battle between two groups who were fundamentally arguing (laughs) um, about what was right and what was wrong. And the sophists, who had no interest in argument whatsoever, and were simply interested in courage and love and empathy and healing and all these kinds of things, because they didn't participate in these arguments, essentially they got wiped out, or at the very least we know nothing about them, because they didn't bother to to try and defend themselves against these attacks that they were getting. And so a big purpose of the book is to try and recover what those sophists would have done, and to imagine... What, they, what kind of wonderful inventions they would have uncovered if they'd had the chance to see all the new kinds of literature that we've invented today. And the book is also honest about the fact that because rhetoric and philosophy are what survived in the ancient world, that's almost all that we're taught in literature classes today in school. So when you read a novel or a poem, you're taught to think about it as a piece of rhetoric or as a piece of philosophy. You're taught to think, you know, is it persuading me? Is it charming me? You know, how is it moving me to think something? Or you're taught to think, is it right? Is it wrong? Do I buy its arguments? Do I buy its themes? Do I buy its representations? Do I need to critique them? Do I need to interrogate them? So in literature classes, we're we're taught to basically practice rhetoric or philosophy. And what I say in the book is, well, we could also practice what the sophists practice. We could also practice uncovering how literature moves these powerful emotions that don't have to be connected to arguments that can just be connected to our own personal and cultural well-being. Um, And so, in a way, the book is an attempt to kind of bring back to life a group of teachers um, who nobody remembers anymore, but who have had an enormous influence on me. Um, And I hope we'll have a similarly inspirational influence on people who read the book.
0: Angus, thank you so much for joining me. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a joy and a delight. And I am honored. My guest today is
0: Angus Fletcher. His book is Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. You can't create literature without a language. Here's an excerpt from our interview with David Peterson, the creator of alien languages for HBO's Game of Thrones and Marvel's Dr Strange
4: all grammars are kind of imperfect they 're redundant in some places, nevertheless, um, you are basically solving the problem of communication with the grammar that is you you have to say a bunch of stuff, you need to convey a certain you know number of meanings, and uh, the grammar has to be able to do it. but once that 's done, then the rest of it is uh, the vast lexicon before you, and the lexicon, in my mind, is really much more art. Then science, um, there are definitely some scientific elements that are involved, such as uh, determining the phonotactics of the words, that is exactly how they're pronounced and what happens when you have compounds. And, and there's also other issues about how borrowing works and how derivation works and making sure that it, it functions properly. But as far as the meanings go, it's really up to you to take the entire wealth of human experience or alien experience, if that's who you're creating the language for, and carving it up there's no one way to do it. And all, in fact, all ways are going to be slightly different. Certainly, all languages can say the same thing, but others will say one thing with fewer words than another. Um, uh, you know, s- some areas will be more concise, some will be more verbose, some will have specific words for certain concepts, others will just have to be able to describe it with a number of words. And as a language creator, it's entirely up to you how you want to do that. And essentially, you're basically writing stories. You're writing stories of the people that came up with these original words and why they came up with them, what the area was like uh, around them, what their lives were like, and what they must have thought of when they came up with these concepts.
0: Let's say my character is 15 feet high and just a big guy. you had a little voice. And then you have a little Yoda kind of guy what a big voice. You know, it's like... It's like, wait a minute, you've got to kind of make the the languages match, the, or the sounds, rather, match the creatures in some expected way, or, or not, I guess, if it's sci-fi.
4: Yeah, well, it, it depends on the linguistically relevant ph- physiological characteristics of the beings that you're creating languages for. So... Um, You know, just thinking of examples of aliens, um, the Na'vi from Avatar, the Klingons from Star Trek, uh, uh, most of the aliens uh, that have speaking parts in Defiance, linguistically, they're all basically human. I mean, they basically have, you know, still have the lungs. Uh, even though Klingons have an extra lung, it still doesn't really affect things. They still have the same Klingons larynx. Klingons have
0: an extra lung, man. I'm going to dine out on that for a while. They that do. was really good. They do. Out. But
4: yeah, you know, the the larynx <laughs> is still the same. The tongue is still the same. The, the, even if the teeth look funky, the the alveolar ridge is still there. So you know, basically, they're 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 working with the same set of sounds that we got. If you're doing something erratically different, then it must match the physiology of those of those creatures. Um, and uh, an example that I use in my book, which is still a wonderful example to bring up all the time, is um, Denis Moskowitz's language, Rikchik. Um, now, Rikchik was created for... Aliens that have a great big globular bulbous head with one gigantic eye, and they have an eyelid, but they don't have mouths or ears or anything like that. And then they got 49 tentacles that kind of dangle down beneath them, and seven of them are shorter that they use for, uh, for kind of like hands, so even though there are no hands on the end of them, they're just seven tentacles. And he created a language for them. Obviously, the language has no sounds because they don't have mouths and they don't have ears. They can't even hear the sounds, so there's no point to creating a language with sounds. So what their language is is they have those seven tentacles and they use the tentacles to form into glyph-like shapes and those constitute the entire language. And, you know, obviously that's, that's an appropriate language for those people because of their unique physiology. Um, and, yeah, so you have to take that into consideration, but, you know... When it comes to spoken language, you really have to do some radically different stuff to get to some radically different sounds, you know?
0: And you've created a lot of languages. How many to date would you say?
4: I don't know. It's over 30.
0: It's over 30. And you have lots of fans depending on who watches what series, reads mm. what books, things like that. So places like Comic-Con and stuff, they come up to you and they start speaking in the language, right?
4: Yeah, some will. Uh, it, it happens uh, more frequently. I'm more worried about you. No, I'm fine. <laughs> do you, do you, are you able to respond in every language? Uh, usually, because usually what they'll they'll have is like some very introductory phrase. And I'm like, oh, good. Yes, I have a response memorized for this. And then it's like they don't have something to come back from that. I'm like, ha ha ha. Now I can still pretend that I'm fluent. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not fluent in any of these things. But um, yeah, actually, more often the interaction is online. Um, you know, a lot of interaction on on Twitter, on Tumblr, and then just over email. And there are there are some people that are really, really very good with some of the languages I've created. Like uh, like Justin Manfield is just absolutely outstanding at High Valyrian, uh, kind of um, intimidatingly so. Um, and so it's like <laughs> sometimes if he if he points something out and says, "Oh, well, shouldn't this be like this?" I'm actually kind of sit there thinking. Mm. Maybe it should be. <laughs> but then I usually bark at him. No, no, no. This is the way I said it
0: was. I did it exactly that way for a reason. I'm <laughs> too busy to discuss it. <laughs> yeah,
4: but, um, but, you know, it's it's outstanding. It's outstanding, and, and you know, I, I love it. I mean, as as language creators, you know, somebody who was creating languages for 10 years before any of this happened, you know, that's that's all we want is for somebody to take a look at our languages and say, hey, you know what? That's, that's really cool. You did a good job. And... Um, there are so many thousands of language creators that are just doing it for fun and have been for years that would just love the opportunity to have you know somebody say that to them um and so that's why you know i still try to 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 talk about their languages and share them because you don't really hear about them but the best work that's ever been done for created languages has been done by the people in the online community um and just for the love of it
0: Now, I took your book and I thought, gee, it's somewhere between sort of a part history book, it's a textbook, it's a how-to manual, which is different. Have I kind of got it in there as to how this book works?
4: Yeah, and all in like less than 300 pages. Um, (laughs)
0: And very easy to read.
4: (laughs) Thank goodness. Uh, But uh, I have to tell you, I I reached kind of a quandary. You know, originally the title of the book was just going to be How to Invent a Language. And um, when I finished writing the first section, I sent it to my editor, and and she said, like, the the section I sent her was about 65,000 words long. And she said to me, we wanted the book at its, you know, total to be 72,000 words. (laughs) And you've done one section out of the four that you planned. So maybe let's have a discussion. She said in a very nice way, maybe let's have a discussion about what you're doing. So I'm like, oh, brother. So uh, that was kind of a, if if I had a low point, because it was such fun writing the book, if I had a low point, it was then. And uh, I actually had a a wonderful discussion with my brother-in-law, Will McPherson, where I just told him, I said, look, this is what happened. Um, Because, you know, we're both big literature fans and we read the same stuff. And I said, this is what happened. I'm going to have to cut 40,000 words out of this section at least. And I was like, I just don't know what to do. And he said to me, like, you know, think about think about the average person picking up this book. What will they want to to see? What will they want to read? And I I was like, uh, he kind of guided me in like what he thought he would like to see in a book like this. And I said, well, but I can't call it how to invent a language anymore, um, because it's not going to be everything that you need to know. And he said, "Uh, how about the art of language invention? I was like,
0: Hey, I only have seven more thousand words to write. It's like, oh, my
4: God, that's brilliant, (laughs) because it's like, it doesn't promise, you know, you know everything, but it will tell you about And It kind of, like, refocused me and gave me a new direction, and it was really, that was a monumental point for me. And then the rest of the book just flowed from there.
0: Well, David, thank you so much, and uh, let's see how I'm going to do this. For us, Jack, deros y las religo. La Zariska Lovenan in Nikula is a no lobuno. That one is and goodbye. That means all the same in all the languages that you provided us. Thank you so much. My guest today is David Peterson. The book is The Art of Language Invention From Horse Lords to Dark Elves The Words Behind Word Building. It's published by Penguin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The entirety of David Peterson's 2015 interview can be heard on technation.com for technation. I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Technation and its regular segment Biotech Nation are produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monty Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at TechNation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Landcor.